We're starting a new sermon series today entitled No Greater Love. And when I write these sermons each week and put a series together, I usually know how many sermons are going to be in the series and what each topic will be as I've prayed about it and heard from the Lord and mapped it out even before I've written all the sermons. But sometimes I don't always know where a sermon is going or a series is going. Sometimes it's a matter of simply being obedient to the direction that I believe the Holy Spirit is leading me, and then I write the sermons as they come. And this is one of those series where I'm not certain how far we'll go in exploring this subject of God's love. And I have an idea that we'll probably spend at least three or four weeks here, but I'm not completely settled on that. And the reason I'm mentioning it is because in about three weeks from now, we have Mother's Day. Uh, coming up, and then Pentecost Sunday on back-to-back weeks. So we'll pause this series for a couple of weeks to focus on those events specifically, and then we'll pick it back up after that, okay? Let's turn, if you have your Bibles, to John chapter 15, uh, starting on verse 12, and we're going to read about six verses. John chapter 15, starting in verse 12. It says, This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. From the dawn of recorded time to this very moment that we're sharing right now, there has never been a greater love than that which was displayed on an old rugged cross, stained with innocent blood. Can you imagine the care, the love that must have gone into painting the morning sky? in all of creation when the Lord made all of this. The love that was shown in the sculpting of the mountains and the the power of the seas and the beauty of a sunset. How much love did the creator of the universe display when he crafted every living thing into existence? And yet it pales in comparison to the love he showed us when he willingly sacrificed his son for you and for me. In fact, there is no greater love. And the truth is, his love encompasses many attributes and produces much fruit in this world. And so uh, we'll attempt over the next few weeks to cover some of these. And you know, God's love isn't um, simply about good feelings. That sort of ushy, gushy feeling we get in the pit of our stomach when we're with our sweetheart. It's not about that. I mean, it is about that. It is about that, but it's not just about that. God's love encompasses so many other things uh, like justice and mercy and discipline and holiness and grace. And we don't often associate those attributes with God's love, but they are very much a part of His love. And so we'll attempt over the next few weeks in our limited understanding and our often feeble abilities to explore the magnitude and the depth of some of the attributes of the love of God, okay? So today we're going to look at the steadfastness of His love. God's love is steadfast. I've just finished reading the book of Lamentations. In fact, I've just reading, finished reading the book of Jeremiah and then Lamentations, back to back in my personal devotional time. 
And I have to tell you that if I seemed a little down to any of you lately, <laughs> it may be because I've been reading Jeremiah and Lamentations for the last few weeks. Jeremiah is referred to as the weeping prophet. And it's no wonder, as God uh, commanded him, he never married. He endured tremendous persecution from his own people. He suffered terribly for doing the Lord's work. He was taken against his will to the one place he didn't want to go, to Egypt, after the fall of Jerusalem, which is most likely where he died. And in all of that, through all of his obedience and suffering and hardship and enduring, all in the name of God, there were only two converts in Jeremiah's entire ministry. Did you know that? At least that are recorded. Uh, Baruch, his scribe, who was one of the writers of one of the apocryphal books, by the way, and Aved Malek, an Ethiopian eunuch who served the king. His name means servant of the king. But can you imagine giving your entire lifetime, your entire life's work faithfully to the service of God, being beaten, thrown into a well, a dry cistern with mud in the bottom where he sunk down into the mud. He's facing a slow, filthy, horrible death. Later was rescued by Aved Malek, ridiculed, ignored, shunned by his own people, and all of that over your lifetime, only to see two people accept the message. It's actually an amazing testament to the fortitude and toughness of Jeremiah. We shouldn't call him the weeping prophet. Sure he cried. Who wouldn't have? This guy was tough as nails. All that for two converts. Of course, we now benefit from the record of his life, but he didn't know that, right? He had no idea. What a life of hardship Jeremiah lived. I could be known as the weeping pastor just from reading Jeremiah and Lamentations. I can't imagine living it, okay? The Apostle Paul, who suffered incredibly in his service to God, actually compared his ministry to Jeremiah's in 2 Corinthians 3, where he references Jeremiah 31. But in one of the few bright spots in Lamentations, in chapter 3, Verses 22 through 24, it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. What a beautiful statement about the love of God. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The word steadfast in the Hebrew is the word hesed, which means faithful. It can also mean loyal and unfailing. And when the phrase steadfast love is used, it refers to a faithful, loyal, and unfailing love based on a covenant commitment. Okay, so steadfast love is covenant love at the soul level. It isn't based on actions or anything that we can do to earn His love. This is covenant, committed faithful and deep love. And so apply that understanding of that that phrase to the next three verses in Lamentations. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. You see, it is the Lord that acts on our behalf, not the other way around. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. We cannot on our own accomplish anything good. We cannot accomplish anything lasting. It is only through the Lord in us that we can bear good fruit, such as steadfast love as we serve Him. John 15, that we read earlier, echoes this sentiment in verse 16. We just read it, where Jesus says, You did not choose me, 
but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Okay? So steadfast love is a loyal, faithful, covenant, commitment love that is a gift from God. And it runs like a thread throughout the biblical narrative. We see it in story after story after story. The steadfast love of the Lord. It's evident in His works and it's evident in His people all through the Word of God. And one of my favorite pictures of the steadfast love of God is the story of the friendship that was shared by David and Jonathan. Okay? It's basically uh, a story of two men who loved each other so deeply they would do anything for one another. So let's look at this story of friendship and talk about the signs of steadfast love. All right, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And this is our main text for the day. We'll, we'll start on verse 55. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 55. This is just after David killed Goliath. Okay, and Saul the king who just watched this happen is asking about David's background. At this point, David was probably 20 years old. Some people say he was 15 to 22 years old, and we don't know exactly for certain, but there's a compelling argument to place him around 20 years old. At any rate, David was a young man, okay? And the reason that Saul is asking about where David comes from is not so much because he doesn't remember who David is, David has already been in the service of Saul, as we see in the latter part of chapter 16. So as long as these chapters are in chronological order, Saul knew who David was. Saul was asking, asking because he's trying to ascertain David's background, his social status, or his pedigree, because he's getting ready to take David away from his family and into the king's court permanently. Okay, so he wants to know the pedigree of David. So let's start, 1 Samuel 17, starting on... Uh, Verse 55, as soon as Saul saw David, at some point, by the way, I had to start holding my Bible out here to see it. I'm not sure when that happened, but my eyeballs and bifocals are on a collision course. Okay, sorry. As soon as Saul and David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant. Remember, steadfast love is covenant love. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Okay? So what are the signs of steadfast love, of covenant love? Number one, when you love someone as much as you love yourself. Verse 1 says, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And then verse 3, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan loved David as much as he loved himself. How many people can we say that about in our own lives? Steadfast love isn't conditional. It's covenantal. It isn't fair-weathered. It's faithful. It isn't unreliable. It's unfailing. 
When you love someone steadfastly, it isn't because they've earned it. Okay, remember Jonathan was a courageous and very successful warrior in his own right. He took on the Philistines and won a very daring and decisive battle at Michmas. Yet he loved David not because of David's military prowess or his battlefield exploits. It was a covenantal love as his soul was knit together with David's. That's something, by the way, that only God can do in us. Okay? And we'll talk about that in a minute. We'll come back to that. There are people that I know, at least in our society, who are performance-driven people. The truth is, I have a tendency to be a performance-driven person. So my emotions, my feelings, tend to be closely tied to how effective I am in producing on any given day. So if I have a very productive day, it's natural for me to feel like it's been a good day. Doesn't matter what the weather's like. Doesn't matter what anyone says to me. It doesn't even always matter how I feel physically. If I'm productive, I tend to feel that it's been a good day. Conversely, if I have what seems to be, to me, an unproductive day, if I can't measure the results of what I've tried to produce, I tend to get discouraged and I feel like it hasn't been a particularly good day. This is the life of a performance-driven individual, and I'm sure some of you here can probably relate to that. One of the dangers in this kind of thinking is that performance-driven people often assign value or worth to production, and that can manifest itself at work, at home, even when we're having fun with a hobby or a game, and it certainly can manifest itself in our relationship with God. Performance driven people will often, even sometimes unknowingly, attempt to earn God's love. The problem with that is that we cannot earn God's love because it's unmerited. Okay? We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it. There's no amount of good work and production that can satisfy the debt that we owe or nullify the punishment that we deserve. Okay, so what's left is steadfast love. Love that is free, unearned, unmerited. He made a covenant written on our hearts, and he loves us because we belong to him. Certainly not because of anything we've done to deserve it. But so often, we continue to try. We, we try to work harder. We try to be deserving of his love. And we feel so lost and afraid when we fall short. Okay, should we try to be holy? Yes. Should we try to live right and please God? Yes. Must we repent of sin and turn away from evil and walk upright in His ways? Yes. Will we fall away at times? Take the wrong path. Say the wrong thing. Think the wrong thoughts. Make the wrong decisions? Yes. Does that disqualify us from His steadfast love? No. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, Romans 8.39. Some of us who are performance-driven, we try to earn God's love. But let's take that a step further because sometimes we make the mistake of assigning value to others based on their performance. That can be especially common with our kids. And if we're not careful, we will value more the ones that produce more and value less the ones that produce less. Let me be clear. That is wrong. 
Yes, we reward our kids for good behavior, and we discipline our kids for bad behavior, without question. But we should never assign worth, value, based on what they produce. Because I'm telling you right now that if God were to value us, based on what we're able to do for Him, we're all in big trouble. Right? God loves us because we're His. We must love our children and each other because we belong to each other. Okay? Romans 12.5 So we though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. You can't get away from it. You can't run from it. You can try. You can pretend like you're all out on your own. But if you belong to the body of Christ, we belong to each other. That's just a fact. You can't do it on your own. Okay? When we love one another as much as we love ourselves, that's a sign of steadfast love. What's another? Let's move on. Number two, when we're willing to give all that we have to each other, even if it means doing without for ourselves. Let's go back to our text. First Samuel, we'll pick up where we left off. Chapter 18, read verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Okay? Why is this significant? Jonathan was the king's son. He probably had lots of robes, lots of armor, lots of swords, right? How could he not? He was the son of the king of Israel. Well, first of all, the robe probably had great significance. As the king's son, heir to the throne, Jonathan gave David his robe. And symbolically, even if unwittingly at that point, he abdicated his throne to David by passing the passing of the royal robe. But equally as significant in the sense of giving up everything was Jonathan giving his sword to David. Here's why. If you go back to chapter 13, it explains that the Philistines had a monopoly on the making of metal needed for swords and spears and weapons. Okay? Verse 19 says, There was no blacksmith in all the land of Israel. So all that they had were farming tools to fight with. Verse 20 says that the Israelites had to go to the Philistines just to sharpen their plowshares and their other farming tools. And the Philistines would charge them two-thirds of a shekel, which is called a pim, P-I-M. And interestingly enough, by the way, if you read archaeological work, archaeologists have discovered at Gibeah, the site where Saul was encamped with his army, they've discovered many sharpened plowshares and weights marked pim. Okay, so continuing in chapter 13, verse 22 says, So on the day of the battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. So to be clear, in all of Israel, at this point, there are only two swords in existence. Saul has one, and Jonathan has the other. How valuable do you think those swords were? If you lived in a huge city, and there were only two motor vehicles in that entire city, how valuable do you think they would be? If you're a carpenter and you're building a subdivision, a housing development, with hundreds of other carpenters, and there are two hammers, how valuable do you think those hammers are going to be? Huh? If you were stranded by a lake with thousands of other people and everyone was starving and there were two fishing rods, how valuable do you think those fishing rods would be? 
in all of Israel, a nation that was at war, by the way, with the Philistines, there were only two swords. Jonathan had one of them, and he gave it to David. That is very significant. You have to know that giving his sword away wasn't just a symbolic act of love. There were potentially very serious consequences for Jonathan to giving away one of the only two swords on the battlefield. But Jonathan's love for David was steadfast, and that meant that he was willing to give up everything, even if it meant doing without for himself. What a life lesson for all of us. We cling so dearly to the things of value in our lives and willingly give away that which is of little value, don't we? We give away excess, often freely. But are we willing to give up what we value the most for each other? For some of us, what we value most is our time. For some, it's so much easier to write a check and give it away than it is to give away our time. Are you willing to give away your time for each other? For some of us, what we value most is our own feelings. We don't, we don't want to let other people in. I know lots of folks like this. So we keep each other at arm's length because it's safer. Because we value our own security, emotional security. But are you willing to risk the consequences by loving each other so much that your own emotional security is vulnerable? Because eventually... We all let each other down from time to time. We just do. Are you willing to risk the disappointment and hurt that can come with that? Ask yourself what you value the most. And once you've answered that question honestly, ask yourself if you're willing to give it away to others. That's steadfast love. That's part of loving each other steadfastly. It's what we're commanded to do. It's a tall order third sign of steadfast love is supporting each other even when it means sacrificing your own gain. Okay? At some point we know that Jonathan realized that David was anointed to be the next king. Culturally, Jonathan would have been the rightful heir to the throne. But that wasn't God's plan. The beautiful part of this is that instead of being motivated by jealousy or self-preservation, Jonathan was motivated by his steadfast love for David. We don't know exactly when Jonathan realizes that David was going to be king. But in 1 Samuel 23, 17, Jonathan says to David, in the midst of Saul's pursuit of David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. So, even though Jonathan could have claimed, or attempted to claim, the throne as his own, he didn't. He could have been jealous of David, but we see no evidence of that. To the contrary, we see Jonathan willing to sacrifice his own gain, his own position, his own future in many respects, for the steadfast love of his friend David, and genuinely seems to look forward to serving David once David becomes king. And we know, of course, that Jonathan doesn't make it that far, but he's per perfectly prepared at this point to serve under David's reign. Okay? Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, prefer one another over yourselves. Put each other first before yourself. That's tough. It's tough, isn't it? It's hard, I know. Because we live in a self-first society. We're encouraged to look out for number one. 
living a truly selfless life, putting others first, is counter really to our culture. That's why when there's a tragedy, like what we've seen in Boston, and people run toward the danger to help others, our whole society turns inside out in amazement of the heroic, selfless acts of others. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't honor these folks who do such wonderful things for others. We certainly should. But the point I'm trying to make is that as Christians, we should all be that way. All the time. That should be part of our lifestyle. Always putting each other before ourselves. Honoring one another. Preferring one another. The disciples laid their lives down for each other. Okay? That selflessness is a characteristic of steadfast love. Putting one another first in service to each other. It's good for us because it takes our focus off of ourselves and onto others, which is exactly what Jesus taught and it's how he lived. We should always be asking ourselves and God how we can serve one another, all right? And I guarantee you that if you take the time to ask sincerely, he will show you plenty of ways that you can serve each other, okay? That's a prayer I guarantee you he'll answer every time, all right? And finally today, the fourth sign of steadfast love being willing to lay down our lives for one another. This is, of course, the ultimate sacrifice. This is where it gets really serious. It's one thing to say, I love you as much as I love myself. I'll give you all that I have, even at the expense of my own gain. But it's something altogether different when we can truly say, I give you my life. Occasionally we hear stories about soldiers in our military who jump on a grenade to save their fellow Soldiers, or they take a bullet for their fellow soldiers. There are stories about missionaries dying to save those that they've been serving in other countries. Physical death for the sake of your brother or sister is certainly the ultimate sacrifice. But I would submit to you that there is a giving up of one's own life for the sake of others that doesn't always involve a physical death. When you get to the point in your life where you truly love others more than yourself, you're willing to do anything for them. That often goes involves giving up your life in many aspects other than physically, although it can include that. If you're a parent, you probably understand that. When you set your own desires and dreams aside to serve others and see their dreams become reality, you're giving up your life for someone else. When you lay down your own will to complete obedience of His will, which is making disciples at all costs, you're giving up your life for someone else. When you set aside your plans, lay down your calendar, offer up your checkbook and follow Christ wherever, whenever, and however he leads you, you're giving up your life for others. This is the ultimate sacrifice. I've been a worship pastor for almost 20 years. And I can tell you that worship guys in churches, particularly large churches, often get all the accolades and they get all the fiery darts shot at them. Because there are always people who love the music and just think, oh, he's so great, Pastor Rob's perfect. And then you got the people who don't like the music. And I'm like the arch enemy. <laughs> and I've been in a lot of big churches. I've worked in a lot of big churches. And I've had people, I had one fellow come up to me. This is a true story. We're at a, we're at a church function, a social after a service. We're the body of Christ. <laughs> and he walks up to me. And he grabs hold of my arm. He's a, he's a retired colonel from the military. And he's about four foot nothing. He's got that whole Napoleon thing going on. The guy's just... <laughs> and he grabbed hold of my arm and he said, Son, let me explain something to you. The old people in this church 
pay the bulk of the tithe. That includes your salary. And the old people in this church want to hear the hymns. Is that clear? Now, things happened to me physiologically at that moment that weren't good. I have a vein in my forehead that pops out when I get really angry and I can feel it rising. And I said, sir, let me explain something to you. I don't give a flip about your money. I will work three jobs outside of this church and pastor here before I will bow to your checkbook. Is that clear? Now, that probably wasn't the most pastorly thing to say, but I was angry. It didn't really go over well, by the way, either. But the truth is, there was a moment at one point in a church where I went into the, the senior pastor's office and I was upset because of all those kinds of, you know, those things would happen periodically. By the way, it's never happened here. You guys are awesome. We are, you're so gracious. We're, we're, you know, we bought a whole new monitoring system, which is downstairs. It's going to take us a few weeks to hook it up. It's going to totally modify our sound and make it better for you. And, and you guys have been so great. But anyway, I walked into this pastor's office one day and I said, you know, I need to talk to you. And he said, okay. And he said, why don't you sit down? I said, I don't want to sit down. And I had about 20 things on my brain about a handful of these people that were driving me crazy. And I really had an attitude. And, I, and this guy was awesome because he knew me and he, he knew to let me just blah. So there I was, just ranting about all of these people. And I kept talking about those people. Those people. What are you going to do about those people? When are we going to confront those people? You know, I'm, I'm tired of dealing with those people. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget at the end of that, when I finished, he said, are you through? And I said, yeah. And he said, let me tell you something. I'm just going to tell you one thing. I want you to think about it. I said, okay. He said, your job as a pastor is to lay down your life for those people. Ugh. <laughs> Not the answer I was looking for. Well, I want to tell you something. I walked out of there and I prayed and I thought and I prayed and I thought long and hard about that. And that, that statement was the beginning of a transformation in my own life about the church. I began to pray and ask God to help me love people, even the people that don't like me. And it was amazing what happened inside of me. It really transformed my life and my view of the church. Okay? Laying down your life for others is the ultimate sacrifice. And as always, our ultimate example is Jesus Christ himself. When you, you see, when he took the journey on the cross, he put all of us before himself. He gave up everything. He forfeited his own gain for ours, and he laid down his life for you and me. All right? All of this that we're talking about today is summed up in Christ's work on the cross. And occasionally we see it modeled in others' lives, like Jonathan and David. This should be the norm for Christians. And just one other note I'd like to make, one other point. This kind of love isn't something that we can conjure up for one another, okay? We can't just try really hard and then all of a sudden have a sacrificial, steadfast, covenant love for one another. It takes effort to be certain. But this kind of love comes from God. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And then chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Love, steadfast covenant love, is a consequence, a product of our relationship with Christ. It's not something we can create. It's something that he gives us. We have to be complicit, and we have to cooperate in this, but the kind of love we're talking about comes from God, and once he gives it, we're responsible for what to do with it. So if you're having a hard time loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, start off by praying and asking him to fill you with his love for others. That's what I had to do. I've done it many times. And it's amazing how he responds to prayer that is according to his will. It is his will for us to love one another. When you pray according to his will, I guarantee you, he will answer. If you pray for an increased love for the body of Christ, he'll give it. But you have to be prepared to act on that. Prepared to lay your life down for others, okay? When we came here and started this church, aside from the first small group of people that, that were here with us over the summer, we largely didn't know the people that were coming in. And it's true that for most of you, we've either spent time with you before or after services or during some of our ministries outside of Sunday mornings. We've shared meals with many of you. We've fellowshiped at different settings. And all of that facilitates relationships growing, Okay, that's why we have family fellowships. It's why we have men's bowling night and, and ladies' game night. It's why we spend so much time before and after youth services hanging out. It's to build relationships. Okay, but the truth is, long before I ever met you, I had a deep love for you because I'd been praying for you and about you for many months. I didn't know who the Lord was going to bring through those doors, but I knew that whoever it was, was exactly who he wanted to be here. And I can tell you that I have a deep, I have a deep and abiding love for you, church, because he gave me that even before I met you. So when I get to hang out with you, it's icing on the cake because I already love you. John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said, by, all, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He didn't say all people will know that you're my disciples if you can make the best theological arguments. He didn't say all people will know that you're my disciples if you can make your church cooler than anyone else's in town. He didn't say all people will know that you are my disciples by your popularity or by putting each other down or by dissension among you. Or by only hanging around those that you really like. No. He said, they will know you are my disciples if you have love, love, love for one another. Listen. Listen. Upcountry church, the world needs Jesus. How will they ever see him if they don't see him in us? How will they know him? They will know him by our love for each other. Love is not optional. Not here. Love is a mandate. And I'm closing. I've had people say, well, Pastor Rob, how can I love others when I'm not even sure, honestly, that he loves me? My life is a mess. My family is screwed up. I can't keep my relationships together. The truth is, I don't even like myself. Does he really love me? At one time, I know I made a commitment to him, but my life is really kind of messed up. How long, then, will his love for me hold out? How long can I look to the God of the universe and expect his love to surround me? How long will his love endure my shortcomings, my weakness, my lack of faith, and my inadequacy in my pursuit of Christ? 
how far is too far that I've gone? How long is too long that I've walked away from the Lord? At what point will His love for me cease? Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for His steadfast love endures forever. But Lord, will you keep loving me even when I mess things up? To him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever. To the sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever. But you know, God, I haven't been serving you like I should. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever and brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two for his steadfast love endures forever and made Israel pass through the midst of it for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness for his steadfast love endures forever. But Lord, the circumstances of my life, the issues that I face are too great. To him who struck down kings for his steadfast love endures forever and killed mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever and gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. But Father, I'm at the lowest point in my life. No matter how hard I try, it seems like everything is falling apart around me. It is He who remembered us in our lowest state. For His steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes. For His steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh for His steadfast love endures forever. What then shall I do? What can I say? How can I respond to the gift of your great love? Verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven. Church, for his steadfast love endures forever. Why don't you praise the Lord with me for that word? Come on, let's stand together and we'll close. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we're so grateful this morning. For your steadfast love. No matter how far away from you we run. No matter how hard we mess things up. No matter how deep the chasm that separates us from you. Nothing, no one can separate us from your love. Your steadfast love endures forever. And we're so grateful this morning. I just want to ask if there's anyone here.